Welcome to Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Haig-Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year, Reflections on Home, Family, and a Life Fully Lived. I'm your host, Dan McLennan, and I'm sitting at the desk in the study at Above Tide, also known as Haig-Brown House. From here, I can look out the window across the grounds at the Campbell River flowing past, just as Haig Brown did when he wrote more than 20 books and numerous articles and essays, lectures, and more. He was a remarkable man on many levels, an early, eloquent naturalist and conservationist, a farmer, a magistrate, a university chancellor, and an award-winning author. In the world of fly fishing, he occupies the Pantheon. In Measure of the Year, Haig Brown presents a chapter for each month in the lives of the farm, his family, the community, and the nature that surrounds them. So we're going to bring you Haig Brown in 12 parts, through his book, through the eyes and voices of his four children and others who knew him well. We'll take a measure of the man through his Measure of the Year. Celia Haig-Brown is the youngest of four children of Anne and Roderick Haig-Brown. She grew up on the banks of the Campbell River and on horseback with her friends riding old logging roads far into the woods. And not too surprisingly, she majored in English and zoology at the University of British Columbia, passions she'd learned from her parents. The horses led her to her cowboy husband, the log house, and rolling grasslands on Brigade Lake near Kamloops. Now a professor at York University in Toronto, most of her research, conducted over the past 40 years, is based on work with Indigenous peoples from nations across Canada. She's written three books, directed four movies, and is currently beginning work on a fifth called Rodeo Women Behind the Scenes. Her three children, six grandchildren, and her wife of 20-plus years give her life meaning. She joins us from her home looking over the Humber Marsh, where waterfowl, coyotes, deer, and huge snapping turtles also make their home. We asked Celia to read us one of her favorite passages from Measure of the Year. Thank you, Dan, and I'm delighted to be here and delighted to have this opportunity to read some of my father's work. And here it is. I sometimes think the only crime a parent can commit, short of not loving a child, is to try and force it into the realization of his own half-forgotten dreams. There is no reason why the child of any parent should excel or even want to excel, no reason why it should ever be urged to strive and fight beyond its strength. A child, and the man or woman after the child, must strive within its strength up to its own full realization. It must learn to feel and know the world about it, advance the world if it will, use the world so far as it must, and understand the world as it can. Fulfillment may be in driving trucks as well as in signing treaties, in lying in the leaves as surely as in painting pictures. Let children only become themselves, using eyes and minds and senses, feeling and enjoying as men and women do, searching into the meaning beyond meaning if they aspire to, accepting the truth in light and color and movement before their eyes if that is more natural to them. Let them only be true to themselves so that they have true selves to give. Let them be sure in this, 
feeling the strength of their sureness within themselves, not in relation to or in competition with other men and women, but in relation to an absolute standard their hearts know. That's a beautiful passage, and it says more about parenting than I think I ever figured out. It's a classic example of your father's consideration of almost everything seems to show more thought and effort to get into the nub of an issue than most people, I think, really put their minds to. He had an amazing ability to articulate those thoughts. And I've never heard that passage you read. I've never heard anybody describe parenting that way other than your father. Obviously, it struck a chord with you too. It certainly did. And I actually loved, this is from the month of July, and I loved all of the section that he had done on children, perhaps because I'm one of his children. It was where my head turned when I decided to find a a passage. And I think what I really loved about this is that openness to having children become who they should and want to be, as opposed to some predetermined decision made by parents ahead of them. I loved it for that reason. I loved it for some other reasons too, and I I don't know if you want me to go on here, but I have to say that when you read more of this, we have a very serious paragraph that I chose, but when you read more of this section, you find a man who is extremely funny, and he talks about his four children and their interruptions to his writing day. And uh, it, it did make me think a little of COVID times when people are trying to homeschool their children and doing work at home and they're interrupted, but he makes it funny. And it just reminded me of his sense of humor, which was amazing. And as children, when we were being reprimanded, usually because our mother said we needed it, we could always make him laugh. We could do something that would make him laugh. He couldn't pull it off to be the stern father. So that's part of why I chose this. (laughs) A very self-deprecating sense of humor, too. (laughs) Very, very. Even when the writing feels dry in places, you can almost see the wink, that wry, self-deprecating humor that also, I think, sets him apart in many ways. You mentioned, though, the interrupting children. This is one of the topics I wanted to get to. This was a man who did an awful lot of writing. And he did, I think, most of it from the very place where I am sitting at this desk, looking out at the at the river. And I wondered, because... For so many writers, writing is a very personal thing. People have their own little quirks, and some people cannot stand being interrupted in any way, shape, or form. And yet there's that passage you just mentioned where there's like a parade of kids coming through the study while he is apparently trying to write something. What Were there rules around, oh, dad's writing something now, let's, let's leave him alone in the study, or was, it, was he fair game? So I want to say two things. One is that That study was constructed as I was about to be born or being born. And actually, the room that I like to call Seely's room, because that's where I grew up, was Hill about this time. I was born in 47, and this is 1950. So that's, that's the first thing. Second thing, I think he probably loved interruption, but my mother was very keen on his getting his writing done because it's stunning work, because it was his livelihood. And so she was the one who was very protective of his time. And we probably were told, don't bother daddy, he's busy. We probably didn't always respect that. And he was pretty much always welcoming. He would always be aware and listening for us and paying attention to us when we came pulling our little red wagons into the middle of the study. (laughs) 
I get the impression that maybe in the world of good cop and bad cop, your mom was the bad cop and he was the good cop. Yeah, it's not fair at all, but you're right. (laughs) When I first came across Measure of the Year some time ago, I don't think I even stopped to read sort of the the subtitle. I don't know if that's the correct term, Mm -hmm. but it's very easy to think Measure of the Year, oh yeah, this guy's a fisherman and he's a farmer and we're going to hear all about what fish are in the river and and what's growing on the farm. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's a very particular type of story. And yet, thank goodness, Measure of the Year is followed by Reflections on Home, Family, and a Life Fully Lived. And the, the passage that, that struck me, well, it starts in the introduction, but he says, I have, I have written about family almost without meaning to. They have come into the book inevitably, taking it over, and in large measure, made it. And then later, the purpose of this book is to show a family trying to live out a sensitive and positive life in the 20th century, trying to keep on terms with its world and yet not be too much fooled by it. And that's a phrase I think I came across a few times, not being fooled by this world. What do you think he meant by that? Well, I think he instilled in all of us, and I hope I've instilled it in my children as well, an ability to really pay attention to detail, to never accept things at face value, but always to be prepared to delve more deeply into what it was we thought we were seeing. And that has certainly served me well in my research and in my job as a professor, but also in my everyday life. It just allows a person to look below the surface of everything that comes by, whether it's a tree in the woods and you look more deeply into that tree and see the little bird that's sitting on the branch, or whether it's a politician who's making a claim about something that is intended to have them re-elected as opposed to serve the people. So that's where I'd go with that. Maintaining some healthy skepticism. Yes. And actually, I have said at some point, I think I'm a skeptic. And someone said to me, that's a very healthy thing to be. And I think I think I, I took that up in, uh, and, uh, and welcomed it into my repertoire. So let me take you back. Where does Celia come from? Where's the, what's the origin of that name? Oh, well, my name is actually Evelyn Celia Haig-Brown. And my father had an aunt, a great aunt, my great aunt, so his aunt, whose name was Evelyn Celia Haig-Brown. And uh, I actually have the notes from her funeral. And it's a little bit strange to be reading someone's funeral notes. She seemed like a lovely person. I hope I can measure up in half by uh, to whom she was. But that's where my name came from. Most of our names have a family tie in some way or another. Most of the children's names, the four children, that's what I mean. A little unsettling reading funeral notes that have your name attached to them. (laughs) If they'd been unkind, it might have been, but they're lovely. (laughs) Something to aspire to. (laughs) Now, when you think of your childhood and this home above Tide, where does that place you on the property? What are you doing when, when, when that pops back into your head? I think my first memories come with going fishing with my father to the line fence pool. I was not fishing. I was too little. I was sitting on the bank of the river and studying, speaking of below the surface, studying all the life, all the plant life and the animal life below the surface of the river. I spent hours doing that. I loved the caddisflies. I found them fascinating with their beautiful little pebble cases that they constructed, the waving of the weeds under the river. 
And also then, of course, on the banks of the river, the salmon berries, the huckleberries, those kept me fed and entertained. And I was six years younger than my brother. So the other kids were all off at school. And I was very much kind of running over the fields footloose and fancy free, but also going fishing with my father, going with my father while he was fishing. <laughs> and, and therein starts your love of biology, I guess we would say. Yeah, there, but also with the horses. I mean, I've always had a, a really strong connection with, with the animals and the horses. They took over my life. I got my first horse at 11 and I never looked back. And we're going to get to the horses and the rodeo in a few minutes here. But let's go back to having the run of the place. What was it like being the youngest child? Some people find that wonderful. Some people not so much so. Well, you have to look on both sides. I, I have to say, I thought, nobody ever listens to me. They're always so busy talking and they all know more than I do. So I had that as part of what I had to, you know, figure out when they all told me that indeed they were all listening to me with great care. I would say right now from this position in my life, fabulous, a fabulous place to be. Pretty adored. I came, as I say, six years later after the war. My siblings thought I was great. I think maybe they even still do. The four of us have an incredible relationship with one another. We all get along. We hang out together. We stay in communication with each other. We have a, a fabulous connection. And there's quite, in the younger years, it's, it'd be more pronounced, quite a, a span of time between the four of you. Yes. In some ways, we divide into a neat pair with Mary and Valerie as two years apart and very close. And my brother, Alan, who is six years older than me, but... I accompanied him, and I can't tell you some of the wild and crazy things I got to do as he and his friends fixed up old cars, and we drove up the Argonaut Road, and I could see the road going by beneath my feet. No, there definitely were not seat belts, and I don't think I was very old, and it all worked out fine. But my brother and I also have had really strong connections along through those years, and still do. I spoke to him only this morning on the phone. Let's go back to the dinner table, a telling place with most families. What was it like being at the family gathering spot for dinner? Well, I don't know if it's in measure of the year or not, but the way that uh, dinner began was, I mean, the way that we were called to the table, dinner's ready, at which point, I swear, we all went around and picked up whatever it was that we had been reading from the littlest to the parents. And no, we did not sit and read at the dinner table. But what we did do was discuss what it was we had been reading. And I think that is, has been such an important part of our development in terms of a, of a commitment to literacy and to liter literary and constantly to reading. It's something that I think that we've all tried to instill in our children in the same way, but times have changed and it's not the same. Although all of them read, it's not to say they don't, but there's not that same intensity of, you know, an article in the New Yorker, the latest novel, the children's book. All of those things would be taken up in conversation at the dinner table. And, you know, correcting our manners and teaching us how to hold our fork properly and be polite about our mother's cooking and enjoy and, and thank her for the work that she was doing. All of those were also part of it. Did you have to defend your reading or no. was, was there sort of a, uh, a scholarly process being learned there? No, I think it would be much more we were enjoying what each other had to say. I, I don't remember it being argumentative at all. It was much more kind of informing and connecting with one another. And maybe I'm romanticizing now and I don't remember, but that's, uh, that's what's in my head. Now, in that passage you read, he's struck by how quickly children grow into their own personalities. 
essentially, becoming so much more than weak reflections of what they've been told. Is it possible to put into words that how did your upbringing and your personality growth back here at Above Tide, how did that sort of set you on the path, the journey that you've been on ever since? I find that passage very interesting because, and, and maybe Haig Brown House in some ways is a reflection of that upbringing that we had. When the time came for our parents to, you know, as they were aging and thinking about passing things on, each one of us was asked, do you want to come and live in this house in Campbell River? And each one of us, without exception, said, we've made our lives elsewhere. No. If you want to sell the place to the green belt of the provincial government, so be it. We love that place. We'd love to see it stay green, but we're living our lives. And I think that's a testament to the action that came out of those words that I just read. This was real. This was how we were raised. Move into your own life. Do what it is that works for you. And we certainly have done that. Now, you have three children of your own, six grandchildren, and I think it's safe to say generally that becoming a parent is, well, in my eyes, it was this mind-blowing experience where you are constantly made to think of, oh, this is what my parents were going through at the time that I never paid any attention to and took completely for granted, and maybe I should have taken notes along the way somewhere. Do you find that voice? Of course, there's the uh, you find yourself speaking in your parents' voice when you're speaking to your children. Oh, yes. But do you find yourself reflecting back still on, you know, oh, so this is what they were up to at the time that I didn't really notice back then? That's a tough question because, I again, I would say times changed, but also the situation of our lives, and again, I would say it about all of us, except maybe my sister Mary, who lives in Saanich, we were all very much on the move into various different places, taking our children with us, different jobs, different careers, different aspirations. So, I don't find that our living circumstances were the same. That being said, I do remember very clearly when I said to one of my children, don't gnaw on that bone. <laughs> and as you said, you know, your parents' words coming out of your mouth, I thought, gnaw? I've never even, I haven't even said that word for years. Where did it come from? So, I hope that I have some of the good attributes of my mother and father, but we're all very different people from them. We are not them. We're different. As they intended. Exactly. Yes. I don't mean it in a, in a negative way, although they're amazing and wonderful people and far from perfect, but then who is perfect? My father had a phrase that he would use whenever he was a little less than pleased with me. A friend and I sat down the other day, and his father had a phrase, and we swapped phrases. <laughs> and mine was, I'm a little disappointed in that last stunt you pulled. Were there phrases that come back to mind, even though your father was generally the good cop, by the sounds of it, when you were in trouble? Phrases that you heard, and that maybe you still do hear. No, I don't recall a phrase. I'm the youngest. I think I was kind of probably spoiled, loved, whatever. I do remember moments when I had done some atrocious things and his horror and look of disappointment. Well, look of like, oh my God, how could you possibly? But he never talked like that. Well, he would say very rashly, now, this is what we are going to have to do. That would be more his approach to things. An incredibly, incredibly rational approach. Solution-based. Yes. My mother, on the other hand, flared. And I do remember, you know, the odd smack once. Well, two of them, I think, in my whole life. But I do remember. <laughs> my goodness. 
He writes the children passages in the chapter of July. Yes. Which is a fair ways into the book. Any thoughts on why he kind of held off on the children for that long in terms of March, April, May, June, and then we're into July. We're almost halfway through the book when that comes along, even though the book is full of children. That may be partly because of what he said. He was trying to have a book about something else, and they kept invading and taking over the book. And finally, by July, he couldn't resist any longer and decided to acknowledge, perhaps. I don't know. It could well be. Another question that comes to mind for me, I remember the very first time I picked it up, is, okay, why do you start in March? This is measure of the year. Shouldn't we start in January? Well, probably because March is spring. It's well into spring, really, in Campbell River. So it's the beginning of all things reviving and renewing. That was kind of my thought. But it's nice to start the book that way because we get into that rebirth right away, and it sort of helps to ground us in the farm. Yes. I think one of the things a lot of people don't appreciate nowadays is that there was more to the farm than there is to the property now. It went over onto the other side of the road, Kingfisher Creek, and some of these roads that you were riding the horses on. It was a bigger place to maintain. Very much so. We had animals. There were the cows in the barn across the road, and then there were my horses when the time came. And one of the big issues for me was trying to ensure there was enough grass for the horses, so we had to keep the broom cut down. There wasn't strong enough fences to keep the sheep over there. The sheep on the other side of the road, we had lambs in the spring, we had butchering, we had chickens. One of my first jobs, I don't. I think I was very young, was to feed the chickens and collect the eggs. There was a cottage with very often a tenant, a person, a friend in the cottage. And then all of the fruit and the fruit trees and all of the work my mother did in her vegetable garden. The vegetable garden was really significant in feeding us, as were the chickens and the sheep. It was really very much subsistence farming accompanied by my father's fishing, so we got to eat fish as well. Yeah, it was very much subsistence farming, so it took a lot of work. In addition are the beautiful gardens and the work that they were doing on the gardens, and it's it's incredible what they did constructing that beautiful garden out of what had been a, a field, basically, and then moving it into a perennial ongoing garden, which Marcy took over, and it seems to be maintained pretty beautifully. As we speak, I'm looking out the window, the grass is fresh cut, the flowers are in bloom, the river is rolling by at a nice pace for spring this time of year. When you think back to this property, did you have like a favorite hangout, a favorite spot? Always tied by the river was peaceful and and lovely, but also the barn was another very important place for me. Because, first of all, we played endlessly in the barn. Secondly, that's where my horse was. And I can tell you, I spent time just sitting in the barn, listening to the horse munch its hay in the winter times. The barn was really important. We played. We played in the hay upstairs. One of my favorite moments was when I came home from school one day and I walked into the barn expecting to see my horse. And instead, there were eight ponies in all the stalls in the barn. And I thought, okay, I'm dreaming. This cannot be. I think I literally pinched myself. And yes, I was there. And it turned out the local carnival had come in and the ponies were not feeling well. And so they had come to stay at our place for a few days to recover. And it was one of the best times. So torn between the riverside and the barn, those were my two places. And then all over the fields. You mentioned in our earlier conversations, that you've sort of traded the Campbell River for the Humber. Do you have your own special relationship with the Humber as well? Does the Humber take you back to the Campbell in some ways? 
The Humber takes me to a river, and rivers are rivers, and the water flows. And the Humber, to me, is just such an amazing river in what it's experienced, what has been done to it, and it continues to flow. That endless forgiveness that comes from rivers, this water cycle where if we could just stop dumping garbage into it, stop clearing the riverbanks, allow the riparian areas to come back, the river would be beautiful. This river is beautiful. There are birds, etc., I'm in a condo that overlooks a marsh, and the marsh is filled with wildlife from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So we have coyotes and deer and herons. We had three different kinds of herons, a green heron, the great blues who come often, and gray herons. It's a phenomenal opportunity. And then running out beside the place, just before you get to the bridge on Bloor Street that goes across, which is one of the busiest streets in Toronto, that goes across the Humber, there's a kind of a hidden trail down to what I call the wild side, because I like to be walking on the wild side beside the Humber River. And it's a lovely trail. I take my Labrador dog down there. And frequently, there's no one else down there. I go down, I walk along the river. It's beautiful. Occasionally, I meet someone, a photographer looking for birds or a person looking for a peaceful moment. And that keeps me really very much in touch with rivers. There's something about the scale of movement. I'm, I'm not going to describe mm. this terribly well, but when you have such a quiet, peaceful property, as I'm looking at now, the entire backdrop is this movement on a big scale of water that just flows on past and is always there, like you say. Is there something grounding about that? Uh, you don't get that with every property. You don't get that with most properties. No, I think that's very true. It's, it's both the grounding in terms of locating oneself, but it's also that flow which reminds you that nothing is ever still. Everything is in motion. And any kind of sense of things being static is actually a bit in denial of life force and the way that all of life force works from the water flowing to the trees growing to ourselves and what our bodies are doing. Everything is in motion. I think that's the best thing for me. It's a constant reminder of the flow. Your father spent an awful lot of time in and around this river. thats I know that's an understatement. Mm. Did it serve many purposes for him? Was it a place of, say, reflection or escape or other things that made it so important to him? I think it was definitely a time of reflection because he was often fishing on his own. I don't think he managed to escape. He took all his children fishing with him. <laughs> and I think there's a description actually in there of the children arriving and interrupting his fishing spot that when he'd taken them with him. No, but I think definitely it's a time of reflection, but it was also a time of real focus. I mean, one could say, because I'm an academic, one could say field work, like he was there doing what he was writing about on a constant basis. So he could be constantly refining his understandings, his depth of knowledge of how fish respond, what the fly does, how the river flows, what the back eddies do, all of those things. So sometimes reflection, but I think also sometimes really important, ongoing and continuous experience. Now, when you read Measure of the Year, you are reminded so well that this isn't just about fishing. There's, there's an awful lot more to this. And yet, you know, to hear the name Haig Brown in most circles, people would naturally, that would be their first thought, would be something about fishing. Do you think maybe we're a little too obsessed with, with Roderick Haig Brown's fishing and not enough on, say, the, the rest of his observations and reflections? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that's interesting. First of all, I'd say fly fishing, because 
that's very specifically what he's doing. And that's very specifically what people respond to. And as we know from all of these more current kind of contemporary popular tomes and films, etc. on fly fishing, the complexity of fly fishing already brings in so much in some of the same ways that I was just saying his experience brought. But yes, I, I think what happens with people who fall in love with Haig Brown and his fly fishing is that they get drawn into his books and begin to see the depth of his sensitivity to all of what was around him. And of course, uh, serving as a magistrate gave him other insights as well. Actually, one of the little essays published by my sister Valerie in his posthumous collections has some very strong things to say about the law and the importance of the legal system being based in people who have knowledge of the everyday person of the everyday operation of a town, a community of life, actually. And I've passed that along to some uh, colleagues, professors at Osgoode Hall Law School, which is part of York University, and they're very taken with it. So yes, I think there's a depth of uh, Hig Brown's writing, if I can call him Hig Brown, daddy, <laughs> um, that is not always appreciated. Indeed. Now, I'm thinking there's actually sort of two sub-chapters in regards to being a magistrate that are, in some ways, the highlight or a highlight of Measure of the Year, and they're also not so much based on the farm. It's almost a step away, and then there's kind of a step back. And one of the impressions I get is that the farm was a busy place. You must have had just no end, it seems, of visitors, people coming to talk to your father or your mother, and some looking for advice, some looking to go fly fishing <laughs> and elsewhere. Was it a busy place in your memory? It's an incredibly rich place, incredibly rich. And yes, people coming and going constantly, visitors from far away, and as you say, local people looking for advice, sometimes advice in terms of marriage counseling, for example, that, again, that very rational, calm approach that my father could take is something that drew people to him when they were working through crises. And my mother as well, of course, and her work with what was called Parents in Crisis at the time, where she provided something of a halfway house for some women who were in dire straits. So, I think that that was always a part of what was going on, both local community and people from far and wide who came because of his writing and his intellectual capacities and affinities. And this house was an incredibly rich place to live. It's very interesting to think about growing up in a small town. And when I was born, I think Campbell River was 5,000 people, but it never felt like a small town. First of all, we had books, we had The New Yorker, we had journals from all over everywhere. And then we had that steady stream of very interesting people from a range of backgrounds, a range of interests. And moving out of that kitchen dinner table into the living room dinner table when there were guests, that was always exciting, quite formal, but always exciting times. In many instances, we hear Haig Brown House, we talk Roderick Haig Brown. It sometimes feels as though there is really a not enough acknowledgement, in spite of his effort to tell us in the book, that really Rod and Anne are a team, and that his writing and his fishing on the river and uh, running of the farm are simply not possible without Anne. And yet we seem to focus so much all the time on what he did and what he said. Do you find that in general, maybe Anne is undervalued? Well, I think that has been the case. I think that can be the case. But I also think that more recently, there's definite recognition of not just her contribution to 
organizing my father and keeping him on task, but also in her own right, the work she did. It was very interesting on Mother's Day, one of my friend's sisters wrote to me and said, you must be thinking of your mother today. She sent me a message. And you know, I think of her constantly. I think of her when I came to your house to play, but I also remember her so well as the librarian at Campbell River High School and how important she was to us, how much she loved the children and the books. And I think that's one dimension. Then the whole other dimension is her work with Parents in Crisis. The naming of Anne O'More House is one way of Campbell River recognizing her contribution. But the other thing I want to say is that when we were picking chapters, my siblings and I, my brother said, oh, I wanted July. It was after I said I wanted it. I wanted July because I love the piece about our mother in there. And when I realized we were only reading a paragraph, I said, you do that part because yes, it would be great to have his acknowledgement of how important she was. And I will say again, that steady stream of visitors and people coming, there were days when our mother met them at the door and said, you can't come. I'm sorry. He's writing. Do not disturb him. And she really was a gatekeeper that I think in some ways I would say kept him on task. It's very easy. I can almost recognize it myself. It's very easy be, to be distracted by the immediacy of a person in the room that takes you away from writing, takes you away from deeper reflection on what's going on. So she played an incredibly important role, but also the farming, the gardening, that was completely shared. They were side by side through the whole thing. And it sounds in large part, not only gatekeeper, but organizer. Yes. She kept him on track. She kept him focused. This was a guy who could reflect on anything. <laughs> exactly. I suspect there was danger of being distracted or run off on tangents that might have taken away from focus. My understanding is that one of the things she limited was his letter writing and his responses to letters, because he could write the most beautiful letters you've ever read. But he wasn't doing book writing or article writing when he was writing those letters. So, yeah, yeah, she definitely kept him on track. My mother-in-law, when she was a high school student in Cumberland, and her partner in a project actually wrote a letter to your father about environmentalism, uh, biology, and so forth. And he wrote back the most wonderful letter on above tide stationery. Mm -hmm. I can picture him here at the desk writing it. And the first thing that strikes you when you read it is he's writing this to a couple of schoolgirls, right? It's probably not the main purpose of his day, but he's taking time out to put the most into a response. Yeah. It speaks volumes about the man. It does indeed. It also speaks to practicalities. And of course, those letters were not putting food on the table, and his books were. <laughs> so that's, I mean, I think that's a, it's a bit crass. It's not why he was writing, but his writing from the heart allowed us to go to the grocery store and buy flour and tea. <laughs> was that direct connection as obvious then as it is now looking back in your youth? Were you thinking, oh, dad's got to get another book out? <laughs> no, absolutely not. No, I was running over the hills and playing with my horses and being loved and eating good food. No, that was not on my mind then. When Measure of the Year published for the very first time in 1950, or let's look ahead to another work, do you remember a time when sort of, I don't know, and I, I have this image of this box shows up and it's full of the new published book. Was there ever moments like that, a uh, celebration of, here's another one for the ages? 
I think there was celebration. I think I was a bit young to fully appreciate it. And one of the interesting things about this measure of the year reading for me is that it sent me to my bookshelf to get the copy that my father had given me. And I recalled that I stayed in Campbell River for grade 13. And when I was in grade 13, I saw this is part of the issue of being the youngest. I thought to myself, wait a minute now, all my siblings have collections of my father's books. I don't even have one. I read the ones that are on the shelf in the study and I don't have my own books. So I went to my father and I said, hmm, you know, I think you should give me copies of your books. And he said, oh, I don't know. I don't think I have copies of all of them. And I guess we could see. Well, I don't know. What do you want me to do? And I said, I want them signed copies. Well, what shall I say? And I said, you just say to my darling daughter, Seely, that'll be good and sign it. So I want to read you what he wrote for me in the beginning of this book, which also resonates with the chapter on children. May I do that? Oh, by all means. Okay. Seely, with love from daddy, Roderick Haig Brown. This is the way, the place, and more or less the time you were raised in. No use complaining now. You just have to do what you can to make up for it. The humor. Of course, this was written before the horses came, which makes a difference. Noble old Simon, at his best, and that little redhead sundancer do add a lot to it all, especially when they're galloping over the neighbor's lawns. And I'm grateful for grade 13 that's kept you here with us for an extra year, Daddy. Now, when I reread it, it just brought all of that back. And then in the chapter itself, there's reference to, at some point, Celie will be graduating. And I thought, oh my goodness, that's too coincidental. That was all part of how I was thinking about the book and that life. So you've had lots of time to think about this. What is it about Roderick Haig Brown, over time, has distinguished him from any number of other people who like to write about fishing, might even be good at fly fishing. But I think it's safe to say no one in this country has accomplished what he did in terms of attracting attention and getting his reflections out there to the point that this is a, a national heritage site. It was designated so not long ago, certainly a provincial site, and the writings of Haig Brown are known far and wide. What set him apart from so many others who might have been trying to do the same thing? I think the depth of his reflection on what fishing brought into his mind, I mean, I think we can say in many cases, his prescience, his ability to see what we needed to be thinking about so long ago, the whole conservation dimension. I sometimes describe, I work with Indigenous people, as you know, and I sometimes think about how is it that my father arrived in this colony, well, I mean, it was a little, it was British Columbia then, but you know, it was a colony, where so many people were arriving and looking around at the big trees and the waters and the riches and saying, wow, can I ever make a lot of money off this? And my father, coming from England, coming from the trout stream that he grew up with, looking around and saying, we have to protect this. And that is through the fishing. It is through understanding that if the mill up the river on the from in England drops junk into the river, the fish are going to suffer. He recognized that even in rivers like the Fraser, the Campbell, all of those rivers, he recognized if we don't care for the riverbanks, if we don't care for the water, we're not going to be fly fishing in certainly in the same way. And we won't be fly fishing at all if we're not very careful. So that level of ability to take what was existing then and foresee how important it was to be thinking about it. Well, some of my indigenous friends say seven generations hence, he was definitely anticipating how hard it was going to be to protect 
the incredible beauty, wealth, and life-giving forces that he encountered in British Columbia. That, I think, is what separates him. And when you see his writing in, you know, in all of its various dimensions, you see over and over and over again his ability to predict things we need to pay attention to and that we haven't done a very good job of paying attention to. So his words still have incredible resonance and currency in today's world. Do you ever find yourself in today's world with today's issues and stories thinking, oh, I bet my dad would have something to say about this one, (laughs) or my mom? Oh, absolutely. It's very interesting for me to hear what people are saying now about climate change, for example, or protecting rivers or whatever. And they're saying, oh, you know, now we know we have to. And I just think, wow, if you'd been paying attention to that man 50, 60, whatever number of years ago, we had to pay attention then. So good that we're finally getting our heads around it. That's kind of where I go. My father taught me that from knee high. That uh, And I mean, Buttle Lake is a prime example, the damming of Buttle Lake. I was very young when that was happening. I remember the moment when the battle was lost. It was like a depressive cloud throughout our household. It was devastating. That's something a child doesn't forget because, you know, overall, it was a pretty happy childhood. But those losses of fights to protect rivers and forests figured prominently. We were very, very aware of the, what I guess my mother and I would both say are the evil forces that were being so, so dismissive of the importance of taking care of land and rivers. And even though he lost that fight, you could say, over the damming of the the river and the formation of the lakes, he was an extremely practical individual. It did not put an end to him. And he found ways to work with the dam there with actually with the people who ran the dam. Mm -hmm. There are some great stories about that. He had the ability to regroup, recover, reassess and move on. He did. But he was also at times very angry, very angry in the privacy of his home with his family about how slow acting or ignorantly acting, (laughs) particularly around politics, right? I mean, it's that whole business of serving the business community and not serving the world and the people. It would make him very angry, but he never, ever stopped fighting, ever. No, no. He demonstrated for us the importance of just because you lose a battle doesn't mean you don't continue the war. Let me back up to the horses. Running a farm is not the easiest thing to do. The horses that you were so in love with, were they working as well? Like they were, were they a contributor to the farm? Not at all. They were, they were, they were a total, as you, as you got from the, the little bit I read, they were running over the neighbor's lawns, causing grief and my father's lawn with big horse footprints in this beautifully manicured lawn. No, these were totally my frivolity. My brother and I did have to save $25 towards the purchase price of a horse before we were had demonstrated our level of commitment. And we did that. I don't think Alan ever paid his $25. And actually, Myrna Bakey and Myrna Bolding gave me my first horse, which was Simon. She'd been using it, I think, for a jumping horse. And he was getting a bit old and he had a bit of ring bone and he was ready to retire. So I, as an 11-year-old, I was telling my granddaughter I had to climb up on a stepladder to get on this 16-hand high horse. Away we went. It was all play. The main thing that I think is very interesting, and again ties in with the paragraph I read earlier, is that the horses were my thing. 
And it's not as if my parents then came and said, okay, we'll help you do this, that, and the other thing. Oh, we'll come and watch you at the gym canis. None of that. I managed to get a job at Avis Rent-A-Truck and persuade the Avis guy who had the manager of the place who had trucks to truck our horses to gym canis in Comox Valley. They did not come and invest in horses and Seely. Seely had to do it herself. And my friends and I, we did it ourselves and it was lovely. But no, total frivolity, total loveliness. <laughs> Not work. I think they did have workhorses when they first came, but that was long before my time, and I didn't know those horses. Another example, perhaps, of them allowing you to become who you were going to become. Indeed. Although a little bit of stricture. My mother had actually had experience with horse shows, and I had a cousin who came from England to Seattle where her father was actually doing serious logging business, and she invited me to come down and be part of some horse show business that she was doing, stay for the summer or whatever. And my mother said, no, you're not going. I don't want you involved with, you know, serious horse show people who are not paying attention to land and rivers in the way that we need to be. So there were some limits. <laughs> and yet somehow you developed a love of rodeo. Take us there. <laughs> okay. Well, it's the horses, as I say. And I was very resistant to the notion of rodeo. I thought like most people, oh my God, it's cruel and those poor horses and nobody loves them and whatever. But as I got drawn into it and fell in love with a rodeo cowboy and married him, I began to see what horses were really about. We had a rodeo business, so we owned bucking horses. And the thing I came to appreciate about bucking horses is, first of all, they're athletes. If a horse is not athletic, if they don't have flexibility and stamina, they are not going to be bucking horses. They're going to buck out about twice, and then they're going to say, that's enough of that. That's hard work. Not doing it. But when horses are very athletic, they love it. They love it. They go, they buck, they buck their riders off. No, there are no burrs under the saddles. There are no spurs digging holes in the horse's sides. These are valuable creatures. And the stock contractor, the owner, would not allow that to be the case. Anyway, that got me into rodeo and these magnificent animals that are independent and they are actually very well cared for. And unlike the horses that live in box stalls down on the flats in Vancouver, these horses, when they're not working on the weekends, are running free over the fields with other horses having a lovely time. So that's a lot of what drew me in. But then I came to appreciate the Brahma bulls that we had for the bucking bulls. My late ex-husband, could walk through the bullpen and the bulls had huge respect for him. They would back right up. I fed them at times, but I didn't really walk around in the middle of them. I didn't quite trust them. They push and shove each other and can crash into you. I think it's the outdoorness, the outdoor life, the, the freedom of all of this that drew me in. It's not the Wild West attitude. It's much more the camaraderie, the community People go from rodeo to rodeo. Everybody knows everybody. Everybody knows everybody's children and grandchildren. Even though I've been away for years, decades from rodeo, if I go, everybody knows who I am. I know who everybody is. I meet their children and grandchildren. And for that reason, I'm moving on to doing this film about rodeo women behind the scenes, partly as a slight vindication of my own work, certainly in the public eye. Rodeo is about the boys with the big belt buckles. 
But there are a whole lot of women who are making it happen. I'm talking about production now, not so much the barrel racers, but they're also important. Until very recently, we're, of course, terribly inequitably paid and prize money, etc. But this is the women that are timing and secretarying and driving trucks and chasing horses out of the fields, which I did with great <laughs> delight, and working the unsaddling chute at the rodeo, all of those things. So yeah, it's the animals, it's the outdoors, and it's the particular level of freedom that those horses have, even as they're working animals. Let's come back to Above Tide. Uh, your <laughs> your family childhood home is a public institution. It's a bed and breakfast. It's a home for a writer-in-residence program. How does it feel to have a place that is so personal, this is where you grew up, be such a public institution? Hague Brown House feels to me like the greatest privilege a person could ever have. First of all, the way that it has been maintained so like what it was when we were growing up and when my parents were last there, it's a dream. It's an incredible treat. The bed and breakfast has been a place that my siblings and I have arrived at and appreciated one after the other, the various people who are here taking care of the place. The writers-in-residence, my niece Elizabeth has been very involved in selecting the writer-in-residence. I love the, the group this year. And then to see Eden Robinson, as I was reading her Return of Trickster, thinking about her sitting at my father's desk, writing some of the final words of that book, just makes my heart sing. I will say, two years ago, I have a very good filmmaker friend who worked as an editor on one of my films, to whom I'd spoken about this sibling relationship that we have and how much we like each other. He was quite taken with it. So he said, wouldn't it be fun to go to the bed and breakfast, take the four siblings and just spend five days there filming? And we did that. Catherine was amazing. She came and made us breakfast every day and then she left. And we had the run of the place and we were very respectful, of course. And the filmmaker, he's got a rough cut, and it's just fun. It's four siblings returning to this place. But it's really about our relationship with each other, as opposed to being about Anne and Roderick, which it took me a bit to get my head around the rough cut when I went, we're Anne and Roderick. Oh, yeah, it's not about them. So yes, it's an incredible privilege, I have to say, Dan. And I'm loving, in the same way that my parents always attracted people to that place, and people who came to stay loved it, it's now attracting more people, and more people are appreciating it. I can't think of anything better. Both of your parents contributed so much to this community over such a span of time. Are there particular accomplishments that you're, that you're most proud of? Accomplishments of theirs? Yeah. When I think about the community itself, my father's writings are so much beyond the community as well as in the community, of course, but they're national, they're international, really. It's, that's where the appreciation for his work comes from. It's internationally. So I really think his contribution in Campbell River was actually around his work as a lay magistrate. I think it was amazing, the work that he did and the respect that he got, and then his work to protect the land and rivers of the area. That's what I would see as his major accomplishment. My mother's work in the school library was really important, but then her entire relationship with the community and her involvement with the Catholic Church, which is where she really made the connections with a lot of people, but also, speaking of skeptics and critical <laughs> members, my mother was a very critical member of the Catholic Church. She didn't just think that everything about it was great, but she did aspire to be a really good 
human being to other human beings to be kind and care for, particularly people in need. And I think she did that over and over again. She did it in the school library. She did it in her home. She did it in organizations that she connected with. She did it standing on the front lines of a protest around old growth forest being cut. She did it in every way, really powerful and good citizen. And I think she did a great job of being a mother too. It would appear so. (laughs) We're going to ask you to read another passage from the book in just a second here. But first, is there something else about measure of the year that we have not touched on that you'd like to share? Shall I confess that I don't think I read Measure of the Year all the way through until I was probably 50? I haven't read a lot of my father's books because, like so many people, I thought they were all about fishing. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're making up for that now. We're doing our best. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for forcing me into the, back into this. No, I have read it now. But <laughs> You're most welcome. What would you like to read for us? I'm going to read the final paragraph in the section I was reading to you earlier that I think does a really nice conclusion to their thoughts about children. So here are Roderick's words. This I wish for my children, not honors or rewards or riches, not the satisfactions of success or even of creation, but only this sureness, truly and solidly based, that makes them human beings capable of sympathy, understanding, and tolerance. It is in them now and growing within them. They see things with their eyes, interpret them in their minds, understand them in their hearts, and often show them again to Anne and myself with the impress of fresh thought upon them. They reach beyond us more boldly to touch the world and give themselves to it. I wish the world joy of them, and I wish them a world no more difficult and dangerous than man has always found it. Celia, it has been a pleasure and an honor to have such a wonderful conversation with you. Thanks again. Thank you, Dan. It's been really fun to be doing this. I can't tell you. I appreciate it. It's a bit of Hague Brown House in words. Thank you for joining us at Taking Measure, a podcast series exploring Roderick Hague Brown's 1950 classic work, Measure of the Year. Reflections on Home, Family, and a Life Fully Lived. You can link to the Hague Brown House website in the show notes, and there you'll find all kinds of goodies, including historical photographs and information about how to experience the house and all it offers, in person or virtually. From the study at Above Tide, the Hague Brown House Heritage Site on the bank of the Campbell River, I'm Dan McLennan.